Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about making Jesus the main character of your life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to church. Not necessarily our church, but a church. I love that you're listening to this sermon and hope that God will use it to impact you. At the same time, sermons are only a part of how God works through a church to impact people. There are a lot of other aspects that God uses big time in people's lives. So again, I invite you to church. If you're in our area, we'd love to have you visit ours. You can find all the information you need to make that happen at creeksidebiblechurch.org. If you're not in our area, I hope you find a church in yours. I know that that can be really hard, so if you want help, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can just email us at us at creekside.me and say like, I'm looking for a church, and we will do our best to help you in that process. I really mean that. We'd love to help you. With that said, I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm going to try to be really, really loud at times and then really, really quiet at times because I have been reliably informed by Jerry over there who edits the videos that I am the hardest person to edit because of my inconsistent volume. And since Jerry and I are good friends, uh, the way you show your friendship if you're a man is by making their life very difficult. So if you're wondering why I, I might be whispering at times for no apparent reason, just know it's to make his life difficult. Uh, but speaking of difficult, uh, recently, uh, in fact, this is my first school year. If you don't know, I teach Bible. I teach it to middle school and I teach it to high school. I also do a young adults um, group that I've been running recently with former students, been having a lot of fun. I'm a chaplain for that school, which I love doing. It's, this has been one of the greatest experiences of my life, but this is my first year without the first class that I ever taught. They were my babies. They were seventh graders, and when I started at that school, I was told, you're only teaching high school, and I said, thank goodness. I don't want anything to do with middle school, and then at the last minute, uh, the administrator, her name is Mrs. Tipton, she said, by the way, I had to add a seventh grade class to your schedule. And I said, that's tragic. <laughs> and I went and I talked to my father, because my father had, had taught before. And I said, Dad, I have to teach middle school. And he said, God help your soul. <laughs> and he told me, if you can teach middle school, you can teach anybody. I said, well, that is scary. And I went in then with this philosophy in my heart and in my mind that if I can get them to love me, then I won't have to try very hard to get them to listen to me. And I think it worked. The problem is the danger of getting them to love you is that you will love them back. And so when they left, it was very hard. And my wife knows that too often, and it is too often, I was crying for these kids because I just felt like whenever they struggled or were having problems or were drifting from the truth, I felt like I just, I, I wasn't doing enough. And my wife, bless her soul, would remind me there are things that I do and there are things that only Jesus does. 
And so I come to you today with a sermon series that is for you as much as it is for me. Because I am guilty. I am a sinner. I get it wrong. In fact, John Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, was chased out of Anglican churches because when he had a true conversion experience, he said, my goodness, I'm saved by grace, not by what I do. He said, I have to tell people about this. So he went to churches and he said, I need to tell you that I am a sinner just like you. And they said, get out of our church. What do you mean? Calling me a sinner. What do you think, I'm not a Christian? People felt like they were being saved because they were good enough, not being saved despite the fact that they weren't. So I do start like John Wesley did, I am a sinner, and I get it wrong, and sometimes I write sermons because when I need to hear something, I figure others need to hear it too. And uh, just recently, we got to start the school year out by going on a retreat with high schoolers, and they get to choose a theme, and they chose a theme uh, which is different to make a difference, talking about how in today's world, if you want to be Christian, it means being different. And in many ways, it's, that's very true, but I committed this year, I'm going to be faithful certainly to their theme of being different to make a difference. But I really want them to understand what it is to be saved by Jesus. I want these kids to have hearts that God changed, not that they tried to change. And when we were going to a lake, it's called Chapin Lake. It's owned by one of the families of the students there. It's a beautiful lake. I thought, you know, it would be fun if I if I became a certified lifeguard, right? Then I could, I could be like, hey guys, so I'm a certified lifeguard. If anything goes wrong, I can help you out. So I went to the internet where you go for all your uh, questions and I said, how to become a certified lifeguard. And the Red Cross said that they could teach me in 28 hours and 35 minutes. And then I'd have to take a test. And for me, I, thought, I was like, that seems way too long. That's way too much content to learn how to pick somebody up out of the water, right? And then I was reading that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, they recommend that you reach, that you uh, row, but you never jump in to save people because of this involuntary drowning response where people who are drowning trying to keep their mouth above water will literally drown the person who tries to save them. And I was thinking, my goodness, Rather than spending 28 minutes and 35 minutes teaching, how people, teaching people how to save others from drowning, we need to have a class, just get everyone together and teach people how to be saved. Teach people how to be saved. And so when I am going into this year, it is one of my singular focuses in class to teach the people that I'm teaching, the kids, how to be saved. And one of the biggest hurdles that I run into is that a lot of these kids come from church backgrounds uh, and church experiences that, that clearly and quite frankly I don't agree with. 
that there are some churches out there that are teaching our young people and certainly teaching our adults as well things that are hurtful, that are harmful, and are not true. And I have kids who look at their family situations and say, the reason that we are having financial trouble, the reason that we're suffering, the reason that people aren't healthy in, in, our, in our life or in our family is because we're not doing enough. Maybe we're not giving enough. That's a big one in churches from the prosperity background. People say, look, if you let something go from your hand, God will let something go from His. That's a popular statement. The idea being, the more you give and sacrifice, the more you receive. I never want one of the young people whom I am tasked to instruct feel like they need to go to Jesus to get something other than Jesus. I want these kids to be so in love with Jesus that they go to Jesus for Jesus' sake because they want relationship with Him, communion with Him, and they're willing to suffer for Him, to sacrifice for Him, to be poor for Him. See, the funny thing is, is sometimes churches treat poverty, suffering, illness as indication of your poor relationship with Christ. But if you read the New Testament, the followers of Jesus who were most faithful to him had problems of poverty, of illness, and suffering. Every single one of the disciples of Jesus suffered to the point of death for his sake. And to look at them and say, maybe, maybe Peter, who was crucified upside down, just didn't give enough. We got it wrong. And churches are teaching the wrong thing. And so, one of the ways that I have decided to teach this gospel truth is to revisit some of our old stories. If you grew up in the church, you'll, you'll be familiar with these stories. Maybe you'll remember the flannel graphs. Anyone remember flannel graphs? Very good. Yes, that dates me a little bit. Uh, but I remember flannel graphs. Uh, there were cartoons. My parents had the VHS. I'd watch these on cartoons. But I want to I look at four stories. Samson and Delilah. Daniel and the lion's den. Jonah and the fish, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How many know those stories? Very good. I, I, I will go over them again uh, just as a reminder. But let me submit to you that if what the author says in Hebrews 13, 8, uh, when he says Jesus Christ is the same today, or the same yesterday and today and forever, we have it up. Oh, very good. That, or as it says in Malachi, here's, I, I got to say something about this really quickly, because those in the back know, I've been a Bible teacher for, this is my seventh year now, but even before that, I would always quote, God does not change. And I would quote Micah. And I just realized this morning that it's Malachi. 
And so I had it so ingrained in my heart and mind. I was even telling him, like, I, I'm not wrong. I got this memorized. I've been doing this a long time. He's like, I'm here. I'm here in uh, Micah, and I don't see it. Uh, so it is Malachi 3.6 where it says God does not change that the gospel truth, the good news of God saving us is in the Old Testament too. In fact, the Old Testament predicts the good news while the New Testament reveals it in completion. But I want to I look at these. And so I want to start with uh, Samson and Delilah. I mean, there's a lot with Samson. If you don't know, Samson uh, is in Hebrews chapter 11, which is where the, the men of faith are, the people of faith. And it almost seems weird because Samson seems like a really vindictive, frankly, at times, terrible person. Uh, he gets involved in a lot of relationships he shouldn't be involved in, and sometimes it feels like he's just killing people because he's mad. But nonetheless, God says this is a man of faith. He was obedient to God, certainly when it mattered. Now, if you don't know, it's the first time we ever see the Nazarite vow, which he didn't shave his hair. He was committed to God, and as a result of his obedience to God in that way, he was given supernatural strength. And uh, we get his story in Judges chapter 13 through 16. And uh, he, he was not just strong, he had a good sense of humor. He often battled people with his wits as well. He had riddles that he would give people. And uh, one time when he was getting married to a Philistine woman, he wasn't supposed to be getting married. He didn't listen to God in terms of who he should marry. He got so embarrassed at his wedding you might not know that this was the result of his killing of a thousand Philistines. He was embarrassed as a, at his wedding, so he's like, all right, I got to blow off some steam. I'm going to kill a thousand Philistines. <laughs> that, was, that was our man, Samson. And uh, we know of his time with uh, Delilah, who was not his wife and who was also a Philistine woman. This whole thing baffles me, just his interaction with Delilah, because Delilah wants to know the source of his strength, and it says that she was beautiful and that Samson loved her. And so she would use that. She'd say, if you love me, you will tell me the source of your strength. He's like, fine. You need new bowstrings that have never been dried and never been used. If you, if you tie me up with those, I'll be as weak as any other man. And so when he fell asleep, what'd she do? She tied him up with new bowstrings that had never been dried and never been used. And then she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up and he rips them off. He's like, where? What did she say? You lied to me. <laughs> you lied to me. You said you'd be as weak as any other man. Why can't you tell me the source of your strength, you liar? He's like, fine. It's not new bowstrings, it's new rope. You got to do new rope that's never been used, mind you. He falls asleep. What does she do? She ties him up in new rope that had never been used. Once he's tied up, she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up, breaks the rope. Where? 
Samson, you lied to me again. Like, wake up, dude. You see a pattern here? And so she says, you have to trust me. I thought you loved me. It's like, fine. Here's the truth. Take my hair and its seven braids and weave it into the fabric of the loom and put a pin in it. Then I'm going to be as weak as any other man. It's super weird, right? Basically, like, hey, put my hair into a blanket, right? And uh, so that's what she does. He falls asleep. How do you not wake up during that, though? Someone's putting your hair in a loom. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Boom, he pulls the pin out, breaks the loom. Where? You liar, Samson. If you loved me, you would confide in me. Now, what goes through a man's head where the three times he lies about the source of his strength says, fine, I'll tell you, but I want you to see it. This is how the Bible puts it. I'm going to leave it. I'm not going to make a comment about it, but in Judges 16, 16, okay, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So nagging works sometimes, apparently, <laughs> because Samson says, fine, you know what? I took the vow of the Nazarite, and my hair has never been cut, and if it is shaved, I will be as weak as any other man. So Delilah had a sense, because she it says only this time she went to the Philistines and said, I got him this time. Be ready. So she put him to sleep on her lap, it says. And then the Philistines came and shaved his head. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the funny thing is, is it doesn't say Samson got up and realized that his head was shaved. It says this, Samson realized that the Lord had left him. And he was as weak as any other man. He was subdued by the Philistines. His eyes gouged out. And he was made a spectacle of. And he was brought before the Philistine temple as they were making sacrifices to Dagon, the Philistine god. And they were using him for their entertainment. And so Samson asks one of the slaves, can you bring me and put my hands between the pillars? But he had no strength. He could put his hand on the pillars. But he knew that the only option he had was for the Lord to help him. Listen, Judges 16, 28. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me, please. God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. He could place his hands on the pillars, but he could not return his strength. When Samson was at the end of himself, 
and there was no more room for his own effort. There was only room for God. If Samson wanted help, it could not come from him. It could only come from the Lord. I want you to see that there as we go into into this next story. You'll see it here as well. Daniel in the lion's den. If you don't remember Daniel in the lion's den, you'll find it in Daniel chapter 6. But there was uh, the king uh, of Persia. His name was Darius. And he had 120 satraps. And satraps were these administrators that were that were governors over small regions all throughout the empire. And those satraps, there were three supervisors that were over them. And Daniel, this Jewish man, was one of them. In fact, uh, this is an interesting point. But the, the people who were in the east uh, at the time, which was Persia, because you had Jerusalem, the holy city, and also kind of where Jesus was and re- did his ministry. To the east is where you'll have Persia. You'll have the empires over there of Assyria. When Jesus was born, there were three men of the east that came because they knew that the Savior was going to be born. Now, many scholars look and say, these men of the east probably came from the legacy of Daniel because he was a Jewish presence in an eastern empire. Uh, And Daniel found favor, as did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with the people of the east. So those men that came from the east, you're like, hey, why are they predicting the birth of the Savior? I mean, why do they even know that? And a lot of it is probably because of the influence of Daniel. That's just a point of the side. You'll know something that a lot of people don't know, but something they think about. But you have uh, these uh, supervisors. Daniel was one of them, and Daniel was really popular with Darius. He loved him. And what happens when somebody is loved more than others, yeah, they get jealous. Like when my mom loved her other kids more than me. It made me so jealous. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, yeah, jealousy. So the satraps and the other supervisors conspired against Daniel, and they said, let's find some dirty secrets. They, they couldn't. It literally said that they could find no evidence against him because he was honest and trustworthy. What do you do when you can't find evidence of wrongdoing? You make it up. So, but instead of just saying, hey, he's getting it wrong, they, they're like, ooh, we're going to go to Darius and have him sort of unknowingly uh, ruin Daniel's life. So they went to King Darius and they asked him to make an edict of the Persian and the Medes, which meant... Make an edict that once you make it, not even you can change it. See, that was a way of keeping even kings accountable. To say, you make a law that is so strong that not even you can supersede the law. And here's the law. It was sort of stroking his ego. How about for 30 days, the next 30 days, no one can pray to any other god. They can only honor you. Hmm. Okay. That's fine, 30 days of only honoring me? All right, okay, boom, stamp it. Well, the problem is is that Daniel 
It says every single day, prayed three times a day in front of his window that faced Jerusalem. So he had a window facing to the west because Jerusalem was a thousand miles away, but he would sit in his window facing Jerusalem, probably remembering the promises, remembering the temple, remembering where he came from. And he'd pray. Well, they saw it. And they went to King Darius. And King Darius, it, to his credit, loved Daniel. He, he was looking for a loophole. He was trying to find a way not to punish Daniel. Why? Because the punishment was being thrown into a lion's den. I don't know who came up with that punishment. I was like, I don't know. How about thrown into a den of lions, right? Like, okay, sure. It seems rather specific. Like, why not just kill him? But no, thrown into a den of lions. So, What's really interesting, though, is what King Darius says to Daniel. He says, the God whom you serve will save you. Now, he said that, it says, to console Daniel. He then threw Daniel into the lion's den, probably a pit in the ground. And he went back and he couldn't sleep. He couldn't even eat or drink, it said. King Darius was losing sleep over this. And when the morning finally hit, King Darius ran. And you know that when King Darius says, your God will save you, he was thinking to himself, eh, probably not. Because <laughs> then he gets there and, and with, with fear in his voice, he says, was your God able to save you, Daniel? King Daniel says, O king, may you live forever. My God sent an angel that closed up the mouths of the lions, and I have been saved. So Darius then pulls Daniel out of the pit. We know that the satraps and the supervisors that conspired, they also went into the pit. It, God didn't close up the mouths, though. Right? It said even before they were dropped, so they're probably being dropped by ropes. It says even before they made it to the bottom, they were devoured. Those lions were hungry. What power did Daniel have in the pit, in the den, to save himself? See, Daniel could do nothing but trust God. Daniel got to the end of himself and there was only room for God to save. Are you seeing a theme here? That the God of, of the Bible often pushes people to the point where they're at the end of themselves and no amount of their own effort can save them, not to doom them, but to make perfectly clear that the salvation they receive is from him alone. Daniel could do nothing. Now let's look at uh, Jonah. Now, jo now Jonah and the, and the fish, the Bible says uh, big fish here. This was a really important point to me when I was a child. When I heard someone say whale, I said, excuse me. <laughs> you must not know the Bible. It does say fish, good sir lest you be confused. But J Jonah, he got a word from God. And God said, hey, Jonah, love you. I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, yeah, I'm out. Why? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. 
and the Assyrians had taken the Jewish nation captive and was basically seen as their utter enemy. These are people who took the women, took the children, enslaved my people. We were in war with them. I hate them. I hate the Ninevites. I hate the Assyrians. I don't want anything to do with them. And God, just to make perfectly clear that I'm not doing it, I'm going to get on a ship and go to Tarshish. Tarshish, if Nineveh is this way, Tarshish is this way. So he gets on a boat and he goes, and the sailors are thinking to themselves, wow, this water is rather rough. Oh my goodness, it's getting worse. Did someone anger their God or something? And it says that Jonah had told them that he was running from God. And they actually weren't all that worried. They said, well, who is your God? He said, well, my God made everything, you know, like the dry land and the sea. And then it says, they were afraid. <laughs> oh, you mean the God over everything? Like, yeah, he's like, what? No, we're in trouble now. And Jonah, realizing that it was all his fault, and now oh, this has got to be a tough decision, he says, Throw me. Throw me overboard and the sea will come. It's my fault. And to the credit of the men, they're like, we'll try to row back. They try to row, but they couldn't do it. And then they said, God, forgive us for what we're about to do. And they throw him in. And then it says they made sacrifices to the Lord afterwards. Like, God, I'm sorry. We didn't, I mean, we probably just killed an innocent man. Uh, so they're pleading with this God, and Jonah gets thrown in the water, and Jonah was at the end of himself. What can you do when you're in the middle of the ocean and the sea is raging but die? But it says that God had prepared a big fish to swallow Jonah. Insane. Jonah could do nothing. There was nothing left for Jonah to do to save himself. Because the point of the story is not what Jonah did to save himself, but that God saved Jonah. God prepared Jonah's salvation. The last Bible story I, just, I want to look at is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I end with this story uh, of the four I'm going to do because it presents for us a formula that we need to use for our own lives when we think about God. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, the story starts, it's actually in uh, Daniel chapter 3, so you'll notice I'm kind of out of order uh, because Daniel chapter 6 was, uh, was Daniel's story with Darius, but... In Daniel chapter 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is king. You'll remember that name. And he made a statue that was 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide of pure gold. And I looked it up. Uh, that is something like 27 million pounds of gold, uh, which is seven, over $700 billion uh, worth of gold, if I did that correctly, which <laughs> I don't know. A lot of money, a lot of gold. 
And so you got to think that Nebuchadnezzar, after something like that, 90 feet, 9 feet wide of gold, he's like, yeah, this is spectacular. I'm going to get all of those people who are in charge of my regions, the satraps, the advisors, the administrators, the supervisors. I'm going to get them all together, and I'm going to say, you like this? Cool, because it says this, uh, then the herald made a loud proclamation to you, O peoples, nations, and language groups. The following command is given. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and pay homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has erected. Whoever does not bow down and pay homage will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when they all heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, trigon, harp, pipes, and all kinds of musics, all the peoples, nations, and language groups began bowing down and paying homage to the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Now, there were three Jews pre present who were uh, administrators, and that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they didn't bow. And it says that when Nebuchadnezzar found out that these three men didn't bow, he went into a fit of rage, and he called them before him. To his credit, he didn't just believe those who told him. He asked them. He said, is this true, that you did not pay homage to my statue? He said, I'll tell you what, we're going to do it again. I'm going to play the instruments, and if you don't bow down, you're going into the furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply. We see it in, in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. It says, quote, we don't need to give you a reply concerning this, but they're going to. Our God whom we are serving, I'm sorry, if our God whom we are serving exists, he is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will rescue us, O king, from, the power, from your power as well. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods and we will not pay homage to the golden statue that you have erected. If you didn't see it, this is the formula. This is what I try to teach my kids at school. The heart that I want you to have for God should be in this way. You need to understand God's power. You need to understand that God is able. You need to say, God can save me. You need to believe that God will save me. But even if he doesn't, my God can, my God will, but even if he doesn't. See, we recognize that God is powerful and able. Sometimes we don't operate with the faith that he is willing. See, God will save you. But even if he doesn't, you need to recognize it's because his plans are greater than yours. And this formula, I think, is beautiful because their trust was complete in God. It wasn't because I'm able. It wasn't because I'm willing. It had nothing to do with what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could do. It was, look, if you're going to throw us in the fire, we're going to die unless God saves us. That's the only option. And we know from the story, 
that because of the urgency of the command, Nebuchadnezzar is very angry. The furnace then is very hot because they're trying to get it up and going quickly that the men who go to put them in, they die from the burning flames. It's so hot. And then Nebuchadnezzar, who's watching this, he says, wait a minute. Weren't there three of them? I know I was angry. But there are four men walking around in there, and one of them looks like a god. And so when they pull them out, they realized that they're not like all singed up. No, there's not even a blemish on them. And Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that their God is great. And in both the story of Darius with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the kings are baffled. And they recognize and honor the God that they serve. And it wasn't because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did anything other than trust God. Their trust allowed God to be powerful for them. And sometimes we, and, and I, I include myself as I told you at the beginning, we, we try to do too much on our own. I feel, sometimes I feel guilty like I didn't do enough for these kids and my wife has to remind me like, hey, you gotta leave room for God. When you're at the end of yourself, you can give up. You can give up. Or when you're at the end of yourself, you can do what these men taught us. Trust God. Because it's when you're at the end of yourself, when there's no more room for you, that's when the only room that's left is for God. And sometimes when, when Jesus wants to bring us to his way, he has to make it so that he is the only way. The only way forward sometimes is Jesus. And I want to tell you this um, study. It's terrible study. But I, I stumbled upon it, and I say it's a terrible study because it was done in the 1950s when you could just sort of be unethical. But I stumbled upon it because I was watching uh, this video uh, of this squirrel that was swimming in this kiddie pool. And this guy walked out, and he was like, oh, there's a squirrel in here. He's like, I'm going to save it. And he goes, and he gets a stick, and he reaches in, and the squirrel, who's just swimming around in circles, trying to find a way out, grabs onto the stick, and he lifts the squirrel out, and he puts it on the ground, and you think, oh, the squirrel just, you know, booked it. The squirrel just passes out. And the guy's like, are you dead? Did you just die? And then he shakes the stick, and the squirrel wakes up and looks around. It passes out. And the squirrel was exhausted. I don't know how long it was treading water, but it was, yeah, nothing left in the tank. And so I went to Google and I said, how long can a squirrel tread water till it dies? <laughs> I wanted to know. Like, how long can a squirrel swim for? I didn't find it. But I found this study by Kurt Richter from the 1950s who did a very similar study, but with rats. He got these big old jars of water where the rat couldn't reach the bottom and he just took a rat and he dumped it in. He got several of them and he just put these rats in these and watched them swim around for a while. 
until they realized there's no way out, there's nothing they can do to save themselves, and they just die after 15 minutes. They give up, they sink to the bottom, and they die. And so his conclusion was, rats can swim for 15 minutes, then they die. But then he said, but I'm a scientist. I need further testing. So he put the rats in the water, new set of rats, not the dead ones, they tread water, 15 minutes, they give up, mm, he puts a stick in there, scoops them up, and lets them rest, and they're like, oh, I didn't die. Not because of how good I swam. Something saved me. And so he waited. Then he picked those rats back up, and he put them in. He put the rats that had been saved back into the water, and then something crazy happened. On average, the rats swam for 60 hours, the longest of which swam for 144 hours, not in hopes that they would finally find a way how to get out. They hung on to the bitter end in hopes that they would be saved. Such is the power of hope. See, we have a God who saves us. And when we're clawing the side of our own jars, not able to get out of our situations, when we have issues or troubles or problems, whatever the case may be, when we are at the end of ourselves, we can give up. See, but when we're at the end of ourselves, that's when God shows his power in saving us. We need to hold on. We need to keep enduring, not because we think we'll finally become strong enough to do it on our own, but because we trust and believe in a God who saves us when we cannot save ourselves. I hope that makes sense to you. I want to I wanna talk uh, really briefly. Um, I, uh, when I was in my... Uh, undergraduate uh, class at George Fox, I had to read a book, and it was called A Grace Disguised. And it's uh, by a man named Jerry Sitzer. And it was, a, it was a, a really hard book for me to read, but we had a really great discussion about it when I was in my undergraduate. And it tells the story of Jerry, Jerry's life. But he was in love with his wife, Linda. They had been married for 20 years. And Linda loved her children. And she was all about her children. She pretty much exclusively wanted to always be around her children, spend time with her children. And it's by and large because she saw each of her children as a unique gift. After 11 years of infertility, when she finally had kids, like I said, each one was a miracle. So for six years after those 11 years, she had four children. And uh, she would homeschool the kids. In fact, when she was homeschooling her oldest two, and they were going over Native American culture. And she thought it would be really cool, a really cool capstone to their studies to actually go to rural Idaho to a reservation and go and see a live powwow. And so they made a field trip of it. Jerry 
and the four kids and Linda and also Jerry's mother, Grace, because she had come to visit. They all hopped into a minivan on a Friday afternoon and they went to rural Idaho to enjoy this powwow. Now, they had planned to meet for dinner with some of the tribal leaders. And so when they got there, they met with these tribal leaders and they got to kind of tell them a little bit about the culture, the things that they were trying to do at the reservation, the, the, uh, all the progress they had been making, but also some of the problems. And, and one of the major problems that they discussed was the abuse of alcohol within the tribes and, and how that was sort of undoing and undermining a lot of the work that they were going towards. But after the dinner, they went to the powwow. It was a small gymnasium, and the powwow was already underway. If you don't know, that's where they do a lot of traditional dancing and and chanting that the tribes would do. And so the tribal leaders sat with them and explained to them what each song meant or what each dance meant, what was going on. But one that really stuck out to Jerry was they did a, a, a really slow one that is actually a song of mourning for someone who had recently died. And it, and it really stuck a, a chord with him. But after about an hour of this, uh, they invited the two youngest, it was uh, two youngest girls, Catherine and, and uh, Diane, invited them up to dance. And so they went up and they danced and enjoyed. And, and you know, this went on for a while until about 8.15, everyone was tired. Everyone was ready to go home. So they got back into the minivan, and they headed home, many of the kids sleepy in the back, already falling asleep, and they were only 10 minutes back, uh, 10 back on the road, when Jerry saw a car ahead of him coming very fast. And it was a, a really sort of lonely stretch of the highway, and there was a curve coming up, and Jerry slowed down for the curve, but the other car did not, and it jumped lanes and hit the minivan head on. And Jerry remembers in brutal clarity that after the chaos, he remembers the terror on his children's faces. He remembers the broken bodies of his wife, Linda, of his third-born child, only four years old, Diane and his mother, Grace. Three generations of women gone in an instant. He remembers trying to resuscitate his wife and his mother and his daughter, all while trying to console the living. Care for the dead, console the living, and all while he knew there was a darkness, a darkness coming that he would never avoid. He knew that the grief Though it had not yet hit him, he knew it was coming, and he wondered whether or not he could ever survive such heaviness. I can't even fathom. And we got to this point in our conversation in that undergraduate class, and I remember there was a girl, she was sitting in the front row, and she said, can we just stop for a minute? She said, how could anyone ever come back from that, let alone see God's grace in it? Remember, this book was called The Grace Disguised. 
She said, how can anyone ever come back from that? How can anyone ever see God's grace in it? And I, I, I got to tell you, at the time I was thinking, I, couldn't, I can't fathom that either. And my professor responded in this way, and I only appreciated it later. He said, with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I didn't realize that he was quoting Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. See, when Jesus was talking to a rich young ruler, and the, the rich young ruler said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus talked to this guy and made it seem pretty evident that it was impossible for him to do anything to be saved. So much so that the, the disciples responded, how then can anyone be saved? And that's when Jesus said, with you it's impossible. But with God all things are possible. The whole point of the gospel is that you can't do anything to save yourself. We can ask, what do saved people do? But we cannot ask, what do you do to be saved? God saves us only. And in our own lives, when we feel hemmed in, when we feel like we're at the end of ourselves, when we feel like we're that rat swimming around, realizing with brutal clarity that there's nothing we can do to get out, that's not an opportunity to give up. That's an opportunity to trust Jesus. And it's hard. And I teach my kids this all the time. That the Jesus way is narrow and difficult. It's not about not suffering. In fact, sometimes the way of Jesus is suffering. And when we get to the end of ourselves, that's when the only thing left is Jesus. And that's what I want us to see at the beginning of this series. That we need to get to a point of our lives where we stop seeing ourselves, any part of ourselves as the solution. And start seeing only Jesus. Please pray with me. Lord, I just thank you that you are a God who works miracles. God, I pray that we would be people who don't look to ourselves to solve our problems, but look to you. God, that we would be people who would rely on, on your salvation that you give freely by grace, not by what we do. God, that the only thing we can boast of is you that you do it all. I pray that we would be people who trust you when it is difficult. We would be people who endure, not in hopes that we would become strong enough, but in hopes that you would be our strength alone. God, I just thank you that you are a powerful God who is able. I pray that we would have the faith to know you are willing. God, and I pray that we would have the trust to have in you even when you do not show up in the ways we think you ought to. 
we love you and praise you and just help our hearts and minds see only you. We love you in your precious name. Amen.